Hello, welcome to the first edition of Speaker's Corner, which is what we're calling our interview portion of the Big Shiny podcast. Uh, Jordan and I today have a guest, Mark Teo. He wrote a book about the first edition of Big Shiny Tunes called Shine that is absolutely fantastic and you should definitely check out. There's a link to buy it in our description. Uh, we talked to Mark about uh, how the compilation came together. We talk about some of the bands. Uh, he doesn't pull any punches, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, no, it was really refreshing. And um, also, side note, if anybody is listening to this interview and wondering why the quality isn't that good, I mean, first of all, we're talking about something that happened in 96. If you don't know about 1996, you dub things on tape. Loss of fidelity is totally normal. Grow up. <laughs> but all that to say is uh, we'll, we'll work out the kinks, hopefully, as we go through. But you can understand what we're saying. You don't need everything in high-definition IMAX sound. Come on. Yeah, we're, we're recording over the internet because, you know, I'm in England, Jordan's in Montreal, Mark was in Toronto, and uh, ideally we would have been able to be in the same room. But unfortunately, it's not an option. So uh, because of the nature of our recording, we weren't able to get it as clear as we normally like. But uh, yeah. everything's everything works out. But it does. It sounds like it, parts of it sound, me especially, sounds like it was recorded live at a concert from the back of the room. Totally. Uh, and if you have a yeah. problem with that, then please subscribe to our Patreon and give us your money so we can afford better equipment. Uh, it would be yes. appreciated. Patreon.com slash Big Shiny Podcast. Come on down. <laughs> Way to sell it, Chris. Um, so without further ado, let's jump right into the first installment of Speaker's Corner with Mark Teo. We are talking to Mark Teo, author of Shine, How a Much Music Compilation Came to Define Canadian Alternative Music and Sell a Zillion Copies. Is that, that's the subtitle? Am I right there, Mark? It's the entire title. I, I, I make everyone just read the entire thing. <laughs> so, so Mark is uh, another one of these like-minded Canadians like Chris and I, I think, who have had this hard-to-define fascination about this compilation series. Um, but before we get into that, I, I think everyone should just check out Mark Teo's Twitter page, uh, twitter.com, not Mark Teo. Um, not, not because of uh, Big Shiny Tunes, but because I think, uh, Mark, you have one of the best photos I've seen recently of a guy with his dog. I usually hate those photos, but that looks like a solid buddy. That's that's Junebug. Junebug is a real solid buddy. She might make a guest appearance at some point. She's uh she's very barky. But yes. well, if 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 that dog has a Twitter page too, we'll plug it as well. Yeah. <laughs> she's still up for not Junebug. So this book, Shine. Um, we we feel really lucky actually having you on the podcast uh, today, just because um, this book is about the first Big Shiny Tunes, which you refer to as the Yellow Album um throughout uh i don't know if that is that is that the unofficial fan title or is that actually uh an official title i just gave it that title myself like it yeah. it, it seemed a lot better than writing up big giant dunes that was the yeah that was the trend of the 90s weezer had the blue album metallica the black album but um just uh as an overview for our listeners uh this compilation started in the 90s uh had a very 90s aesthetic but then uh, as chris and i've been um, talking about each one, it you, you really kind of see how this era of music was quickly changing. And, and you talk a lot about this in your book, Mark, but um, the, the intro of this book in particular is uh, something that I really, 
really identified with on a level that my, my experience wasn't the same, but, uh, I, I find, I found that you captured such a feeling of growing up in the nineties as a teenage music listener and what, what that meant in, in many ways. And, and I think you do a really good job at situating this compilation in a specific time and place and, and trying to define a little bit of what growing up in nineties culture as a Canadian with whatever being Canadian means. Uh, cause I think and as a suburban to, Canadian, which is yeah. a very specific Canadian. So, so yeah. it, it's, it's, it was, I found it to be a really, um, engaging work, uh, just because of how it brought up a, a lot of memories of, of, of feelings really actually. Um, but be, before, I guess we kind of dig into the compilation in the book itself. Like I, I just wanted to, uh, get a little bit of background for our listeners so they understand a little bit. Like, how did this book really come to be? Where were you when you decided that, okay, yeah, I'm going to have to do this? And um, just talk a little bit about your own experience with uh, Big Shiny Tunes and particularly uh, Big Shiny Tunes Volume 1. Um, I, I probably had a fairly um, a, a fairly similar introduction to Big Shiny Tunes as I imagine um, both of you guys and probably a lot of people who bought the album. Um, you know, I think that like when it came out in 1996, I was, I was like, you know, a tween, I think. And, um, you know, it was heavily marketed in much music. And at the time it kind of represented a great way to get like, you know, all of your favorite tracks in one album, um, with the, you know, $15 that you had in your pocket. Right. Um, I think that's one of the reasons as to why it sold so much, aside from the giant marketing push that much gave it. And, you know, I think I really loved it at the time. And it really, it really, I think, just opened me up to a lot of different Canadian bands, just like much music did with its like, you know, much West and going coastal and all that stuff. And like it's it's genre related, you know, programming like Rap City and Loud and stuff like that. I think that as we found better ways to discover music, the comp kind of just faded away in the background. There were, you know, increasingly better ways to pirate music. Um, I had something uh, called, like, did you guys ever do the HMV scan when you were growing up? I worked at HMV in so uh, 19, in 2000, but I, I think maybe they uh, got that scam under control. I don't know. What is it? Yeah, what was it? I, I never found out about any scam. <laughs> so it's probably because of people like me, uh, but I think <laughs> that, like, Americans refer to it as, like, the Barnes & Noble scam, where they would accept any return any, any item that was returned, no questions asked, no receipts. Hmm. Um, so like I would go to HMV and I would, you know, I, I would get, you know, I would have albums that I got from like used record stores from the dollar bin and stuff like that. And you'd return it and they would just give you the full sticker price um, hmm. back and, and you could only spend, spend it in store. So I would, that was one way that I would discover a ton of music. But uh, That's smart. That's a good, how old were you when you're pulling this scan? like 16 i feel like a bunch nice. of a bunch of kids in my school did it that's sure. great i love that that's a cottage <laughs> industry that's <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but like you know because of that though and 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 file sharing and the many different ways that you discover music including just going up and going to shows and stuff like that like i think my musical taste really broadened throughout you know high school and, and university and stuff like that and you know i kind of ended up forgetting about big shiny tunes i like moved to montreal in probably like 2001 or so and got to see montreal and it's kind of like pop montreal arcade fire ascendance you know yeah, and, that's a good time that's a good montreal yeah it was, definitely was a good montreal I, I mean and i think that that was a time when you know when also i was like you know like i'd moved there when i was like 17 or 18 and you know and I, I probably went through a phase where where you know i i thought i was very serious about music and i thought they had great tastes and you know i was listening to all sorts of cool shit and mm -hmm. 
Um, and I, and you know, you, you start to just kind of forget about the albums like Big Shiny Tunes, like the, um, like the gateway albums that introduced you to this, this shit because you're convinced of your, you know, the superiority of your own taste or coolness or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's like your hometown friends. When you first move to a big city, you're kind of embarrassed when they come and hang out. And it's like when you cross the paths of like your cool new Montreal friends, you go, oh, no, my suburb friends are here. <laughs> they're still, they're great guys. I love these guys. I'm an asshole for being embarrassed about them, but. Totally. It's like, yeah. I remember in Montreal, you know, like, like I have friends from Toronto would visit they would, and they would be, or like from the burbs, really. And they'd be like, oh my God, we got to walk like three blocks. And I'd be like, these people are so annoying. And then yeah. like, <laughs> my, at my current age, I was like, I don't want to walk anywhere. God damn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you talk about in the book, like how your dad was really into uh, like classical music. Where, were you a musician yourself? What was your musical upbringing, I guess, before you engaged with Big Shiny Tunes? So my dad, um, yeah, like he listened to a lot of classical music and also some ambient too, which which I think I revisited like when I was older. I was like, that's kind of cool. But, you know, it wasn't the type of thing that I, that I really related to, especially growing up in the burbs and growing up in a very like white suburb, you know, like a very like raucous suburb. Um, so like, I think a lot of the music that I ended up discovering, I, I used to like to think that, that I discovered it myself. You know what I mean? It's like stuff that you would discover from much music or from like discount bins at record stores and stuff like that. And I think that's maybe why it felt really special to me. You know, I mean, like that my relationship to like much and Big Shiny Tunes and discovering Pluto or Salmon Blaster or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Like was something that was singular. But, you know, um, around like, you know, like 2012 or so, I was working for a website called Ox. But like, you know, we would have these like traffic quarters that we would have to hit, right? And and we used to make jokes that like one way that we could really nail a lot of traffic was to do like a CanCon nostalgia post that was like, you know, the... 13 best tracks, Big Shiny Tunes won, and it would just be a straight up track listing. You yeah. know, like, um, <laughs> we used to find that hilarious, but 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 then we were like, well, maybe we're kind of onto something, right? Like, maybe mm. there's a reason as to why people are so attracted to this type of, like, CanCon nostalgia. And at the same time, I was, um, I, I was freelancing a lot for this, like, alt-weekly out in Calgary called Fast Forward. Mm. And Sled Island, the big festival out there, was, was doing, like, a fundraiser, and a bunch of local Calgary bands were covering Big Shiny Tunes songs. And I remember just like thinking, I was like, oh, like this is kind of hilarious, right? Like this music that I had kind of forgotten. Obviously, it had some sort of universal appeal and universal impact. By you know 2012, I think our tastes were fracturing quite a bit. There wasn't really a singular source in which people in Canada got all their music. And in 1996, I think I think you know things weren't nearly as fractured. I mean, I have memories of being a kid. And using a tape recorder to tape like the radio station and like when a song I remember hearing once or if I was liking it, I would like record some of it. And the way in which like music affected all of us, I think, was a lot more immediate. And you had a more personal relationship with what you found, I think. I mean, yeah. it's tough to tell because we're not kids anymore. So and like you said, when you're when you're that age, everything you find, it feels like you're the first person to discover it, even if it's like the Bee Gees. Yeah. You're just like these right. are my these are mine. <laughs> if I got music taste, it was from much music, uh, my friends' older siblings, uh, like who turned me on to Pearl Jam and the Tragically Hip and Tool. Uh, I had I was on a first name basis with everyone at my local A and B Sound. Yeah, and they would be like, "Chris, this is what you're gonna love," and they would hand me an album, and I would say, "Okay, I'll buy this. I don't even have to hear it. This is great. I trust you." And that's where that's where a lot of the special stuff was. And it felt like Big Shiny Tunes was the guy for a little while. Like I didn't know who Porno for Pyros was. Tahitian Moon blew my tiny mind. 
Totally, yeah. Like, I know Perry Farrell was when that came out, and it was yeah. like, what is this song? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Side note, Perry Farrell was probably closer to the age of the people deciding the music of this compilation than the people who appeared on the mm-hmm. compilation. <laughs> he, was, he was almost 40 at this point. He had been through the rock and roll mill. Uh, Mark, I wanted to ask you about um, writing for an alt-weekly in Calgary. What is that like? Because, I mean, Ox, I think we can guess because you're writing clickbait stuff specifically. But writing for Fast Forward feels like you can do more of a, a passion project. Um, was there was there like local things that you had to cover or was it just sort of a wide open, were you like Lester Bangs where you can just write whatever you want and uh, and put <laughs> it out there? Uh, what was what was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of wide open, but I kind of caught it at a really weird time um, in that like, you know, it was a print it was a print publication. So it was kind of going down by the time I arrived there. I think I started I started there in like 2010. Um, but it was, but you know, it was a kind of media that um, it was kind of neat because it just doesn't even really exist ten years later, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like Montreal is cult Montreal and stuff like that. It's probably like one of the last vestiges of it. But you know, there was a lot of just like a lot of like local band coverage. Obviously, the touring bands you would cover them because they'd be interesting. But in, you know, Calgary is bordered by, you know, mountains, the U.S. Yeah. border, and prairies. So a lot of the times, you wouldn't get many touring bands there in the winter time. So mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of like hyper local coverage. Um, and, and, you know, we got to write a lot of just, um, like we didn't have that much oversight, like, and we, and we ended up just writing some just very strange and cool things. Like it was really easy to write a cover story about a hardcore fest. Yeah. Mm. Like my friend Josiah and I wrote like this big story called Canadian music is boring that a lot of people were really mad about and stuff <laughs> like that. So we kind of had like leeway to, you know, to, to do uh, a good amount of stuff there. The sentiment of Canadian music is boring. Uh, you you get into towards the end of the book why this compilation is sort of hard to talk about as Canadians. Uh, you know, I think that I was that I can be pretty hard on 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 stuff that sounds really really uh, really dated. I'm not sure if that came across the book at all. But you know, I, I like to kind of rip the stuff that that uh, that you know I like or 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 that I used to like. And you know, I, but like I think that's somewhat that's somewhat natural though, right? Like not, like you know, like most music that we listen to isn't timeless, right? right? Like most of the stuff that we listen to is going to be, is going to be tied to a certain aesthetic that's tied to a certain era that's tied to a certain set of circumstances. And I think that's totally fine, right? Like, 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 I think eventually, I mean, like, we'll probably look back at the cringiness of some of the, like, I'm other Earth lyrics or, you know, David Usher or whatever. And we'll be able, we'll be able to say, okay, well, that's a product of its era, you know, like David Usher can fully be a blown adult and also have made lots of corny music in the 90s. And I think it's totally fine to look back at that stuff and be like, I like it and it led me to a lot of things I was interested in, but I also think it's hilarious and corny. Do you think that that um, inability for us to take ourselves seriously enough to really mock each other uh, makes Canadian music more boring? Or do you think that's it's just sort of part and parcel of what it is to be Canadian? I think there definitely was an era where we held back a little bit. I'm not sure if it necessarily makes Canadian music worse, but it's definitely a quality of of, um, of the way that we talk about our music in our own culture, right? Like um, there, was a, there was a certain pride in the fact that it kind of reflected the programming priorities of much. So like Denise Donlin is someone who I spoke to um, who was ahead of programming at one point at much. And one of the things that she mentioned was that much constantly over-indexed on CanCon, you know, and they really wanted to have that reflected in the compilation, right? They weren't trying to meet a bare minimum because they're trying to make a statement about the fact that there are interesting things happening here and that they're, and that Canada may have, you know, some sort of a voice, right? Like, mm. or some sort of a vision when it comes to this kind of this kind of music. You mentioned that they 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 over 
shot the quota system for CanCon. And in the book, you talk about them wanting to create a Canadian star system, like not just individual stars like we have right now. And, and basically, like, I mean, Jordan's a musician, I'm a comedian. Uh, we both uh, we both know about the Canadian system where Canada doesn't take you seriously until somewhere else does. Um, and uh, but they seem like they were dedicated to stopping that and making our own celebrity, basically, which is tied into the fact of like the MMVAs and things like that. Did they, how do they feel they did? Did that come up in the interviews? Kind of, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not that directly, but I think that they were, I think that they were somewhat proud of the fact that, that they were actually able to, if not, if not create a star system in the way that, you know, America might have a star system, that they were actually able to get a lot of, you know, notoriety for mm. the bands that stopped through, despite yeah. the fact that, you know, Canadian music might've looked like, you know, the Tea Party having a video with like a slithering snake running through water. And, God, I you know, it's like, so much. what's that supposed to be a metaphor? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Is that on the nose? I'm not really sure. I mean, I'm like, like I... temptation. I wonder what that's supposed to be. <laughs> He's so subtle. He's a poet is what he is. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, they, I'd say they definitely succeeded to a degree. Cause I remember um, I worked uh, at network records and I remember while I was there, um, Billy talent headlined a stadium show. I mean, I listened to your interview with Raven drool and he asked you, Tyler asked you, what um, bands you think you would have liked to have seen make it? You mentioned Rusty. Uh, were there any bands that, that because we've talked about the tension within the, the music scene that must have been for who was chosen and who wasn't for the compilations. And were there any bands where people were just like, how the hell did X not make it that you know of? You know, I know that it was relatively complicated in that in that there were six major record labels involved, which is somewhat unprecedented for the time. Mm. Um, and that there, the much had its own set of programmers saying that it needs to you know, reflect the type of programming that we have on much. Mm. Um, so I don't really know if there, were, if there were bands that were really pushed for and didn't make it. Um, I suspect that would be a pretty complicated question though. I imagine that would be a, a matter of much programmers being like, you know, I really like this band and labels being like, well, no, we are really trying to put this band on the map because yeah. we're on a record or whatever. Because, yeah, that was yeah. The, the Sloan song that came out was off their first independent release. That was after they'd left Warner Universal. I can't remember. Yeah, on, on, they were on Murder Records. Mm, yeah. And if I if I remember correctly, I think that also Murder Records had had major like major label distribution, which would have been there. OK, there, that, yeah. ma that makes more sense. Yeah. I was wondering if Sloan was just like everyone's like, well, everyone likes Sloan. We got to have Sloan in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Universal. Also, don't quote me on that because I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't recall it's <laughs> actually true, but I uh, think that's true. Well, we're we're hoping to interview one of the guys from Sloan at some point, so well, uh, we'll, uh, so we'll, we'll ask them. Yeah, we'll we'll have to earn it in street cred first, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just thought it'd be fun to kind of get into a little bit of the more questionable. Uh, parts of some of these bands that are on the compilation, and and I'd like to open it up to you. Like we could uh, we could just start right off with Moist, but at some point in your book, I think uh, outside of referencing all the times you made fun of them elsewhere outside of the book. Uh, well, actually, I I just want to mark. I never got the impression that you liked Moist in the first place. Were you a fan when they came <laughs> out? Did you like Silver <laughs> or Creature? I was not, but. Okay. But like, you know, I'm not gonna pretend that that I was far too cool for Moist. You know, like I would like, you know, I would I would listen to, to them if they're on if they were on or whatever. I think that like Push is a jam, uh, dude. Push is a jam. That's what I always say. Yeah, yeah, you know. And like and you know, I think that it's just like the type of thing that's really just clarified by like 
by like, you know, two decades of hindsight or whatever, right? Like when you look back at it, and, and I, I don't mean to kink shame when I, when I make moist jokes about, you know, their vocals sounding like he has his, you know, his teeth clenched around a ball gag or something like that when he's yeah. singing, right? Which I think that what's kind of funny about that in specific is that, is that it just sounds, it just sounds, it sounded kind of just like vaguely dark and sexy probably in 1996. And, you know, when I was writing this book in 2016, it just sounded just like hilariously vanilla. I don't know. Like, it's- yeah. <laughs> Well, that's, I think when we talked about it, we, we said that it sounded like um, it belonged in like a, a, a laser show at a planetarium. <laughs> well, and most of, most of why you're at a late night planetarium is because you've got too much pent up sexual frustration and you can't go anywhere. So I'm going to lay down and look at the stars. That is a proven statistical just to fact. Put it down. That's Oops. why. <laughs> there's honestly there is like a nautical theme like a long-standing nautical theme like swingers club in toronto and, and i feel like that is like the perfect just like yeah. <laughs> like combination of two that's like the center of the venn diagram a nautical themed swingers club yeah yeah <laughs> how do they how is it yeah. nautical themed? do they have portholes on the wall and nets like it's that uh seafood place in the simpsons <laughs> yar you've come to me portal Please insert your thing. Please insert your anchor. (laughs) I honestly, I like, I wish I could tell you because I have not gone, sadly. (laughs) When, when you, you talk about a bunch of really cool scenes in Canada throughout the book, you talk about like uh, Hamilton and Halifax uh, and then the Toronto and Vancouver scenes uh, largely. And then, um, and you mentioned that Big Chinese skips the prairies completely, which is, which I never thought of and the territories. It's just like ah, who needs who needs the uppercase T of Canada? Um, but um, why do you think those were so separate at the time, um, sound-wise? When, like we said, we were all sort of getting our musical days from much music, so it was it was weirdly a more unified time of listening to music. So why why do you think the sounds were so separate, regardless? It seems at least, and I can't be for certain, but it seems like um, like there was at least some there was some desire to action to actually you know take risks on somewhat smaller bands you know what i mean like to 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 not necessarily only include the the most successful canadian bands already like to take to take risks on bands that were probably at the time considered somewhat emerging you know like like a killjoys like a pluto Mm. Um, yeah but i'm not really sure if if there was really you know like a push and pull between you know, yeah. adding more, you know, more corporate bands and more, and then adding more, you know, regional bands. That was something I was struck by reading the, in the opening chapters, when you talk to the much music people, um, as opposed to when you get into the bands later in the book, I didn't get any sense that there was like difficulty around the making of this. They all seemed to talk about it as a pretty painless, pleasant experience. Was that how it came across you talking to them? Yeah, most definitely. And I, I think that I, like, and, you know, when I say that I don't really know if there's any conflicts between, between, you know, um, between the programmers and the labels and um, like, I, I definitely ask those questions, you know, I mm. definitely tried to try to, to push in that direction, but um, it's, it did seem all pretty pleasant. And I think that it might also be, you know, somewhat of a function of the music industry at the time, which, you know, w- which was pretty cash risk rich and, you know, and willing to actually, you know, take risks, you know, like mm. to sign every, you know, band out of Halifax to major label deal or sub pop <laughs> or whatever, right? Like there, yeah. there, I feel like labels were taking those risks at the time. So mm. maybe that's where they had a little bit more leeway. How do you see um, 
the trends between like being a teenager in the nineties versus what you think the world we live in today must be like for young people. I think that what was really key is that we had a lot less information and discovery, I think was something which was a lot scarcer. Right. And I think because of that, um, when I was growing up, um, a lot of the information that we had was dealt with as currency. You know what I mean? Like the more, the more you had, you know, the more intelligent or the better music listener that you were, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I, I would think that that's not necessarily the case anymore because, you know, if you have a Spotify or Apple music subscription, now you have access to vast libraries of a lot, a lot of music. But yeah, I mean, I think that growing up in, you know, in the nineties, like you didn't have as much access to that music. So a lot of the stuff that you listened to, a lot of the stuff that you you discovered was super, super precious. And I think that like, when I talk about gateway bands, um, I think that gateway bands were especially more important in that period mm-hmm. because you had to have an introduction to music because like, and because discovery was a lot harder. Yeah. Like anytime uh, you would encounter music, it, it felt like more of an encounter than something you were just being inundated with all the time, maybe because of the internet now, like, I, I don't know, it's hard to really compare what it must feel like. Uh, I, th- I think we're going to have to bring a, a legitimate young person on the podcast at some point, just to check all yeah. these theories out. Because I, I want to bring <laughs> rain Maida's uh, son onto this. <laughs> He's biased. You can't ask. <laughs> oh, he, he probably knows his dad's the owner of a spin studio. So I worked at a really, so when I worked at Ox, it was a very, very strange office. So there was like us, um, and but it was part of basically a larger broadcast company called Blue Ant Media, and they like owned the Players Prize at one point when I was there, and like, like so, you, and they ran a bunch of TV stations and stuff. So you would see just a very strange cast of characters come in, just like, like it was like you know like, like Kenny Hotz would be in one day, and you'd be like that like the Kenny versus the guy, and like, <laughs> and then Rain Meta came in, and Rain Meta is just like like and and we're all sitting at our desk and we're like is that right meta you know like and he didn't come to talk to us he came to talk to like you know a vp at the company or something right and, and we're like man Meta looks like good man that guy's got like a skincare routine like you know like, <laughs> and, uh, but so i think that we we're like well what does he do and then we found out that he like converted what was once one of their um practice spaces he must have owned it at that point into a yeah. studio like I want to see if it's still active. Actually, I'm gonna Google it right now. Because <laughs> like, I might have some outdated information here. Uh, no, I shut down. It, it, actually, it shut down by the time this, this book was published. I should. <laughs> oh, well, I, I'm reading it. I'm reading it right now, too, guys. They said uh, it had to move uh, locations because they were building a subway through it. So I think that goes to prove that he was right when he says the world's a subway. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that must have been a rough day for him. <laughs> You're kidding me. That's what's going to... No. <laughs> He's a visionary. He knew what was going to happen. <laughs> Do you think like when he got that notice and opened up the letter, he was like, hi! <laughs> um, I'd like to think that a lot of um, people who were part of the music being made in the 90s can look back on it with this just like... I don't know what I was thinking there. That was weird. Uh, oh, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I'm sure. That, I'm sure that 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 the people who were involved in music that eyes are going to be self aware enough to be like, well, some stuff I did was cool. Some stuff I did was, you I know, hope to God that's the case. Like, did any of your interviews have them being like, "What was I thinking?" Like Jesus. <laughs> well, well, 
I will say this. Okay, so the two interviews I couldn't get for the book were um, were moist. Um, totally understandable. Got, <laughs> yeah, and like honestly, like they're like 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 not for the book, but but like I was offered a, a moist interview before uh, when I was at Ox, and I sent them like a link to all the jokes I'd made, and they yeah. were like, "The band finds it very funny," but nah, we're not. We're skipping out of here. <laughs> so like, I, I appreciate that, but I didn't interview them, and I'm on the earth. I just couldn't get a hold of. Um, oh. So, and like I think that those would be the one, the bands that might be the most reflective of what they're. Yeah, it's like a catch twenty two. Like they can't really admit that they find it funny because they were taken so seriously in their heyday. But uh, as Chris has pointed out many times, uh, in the case of a Conaline Crush, it's just like you're not that big, man. Like you're, like, yeah. I'm, I find them very frustrating because all of their songs are about how famous they are and how difficult that is. And it's like this is your first single. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of wonder what a member of the Conaline Crush would think these days because it's just like I, like i'm sure there's a bit of self-awareness because i like i don't know what, what those guys are right now but i imagine them being like you know like a creative director at sidley or something like that some agency like that you know what i mean and like well trevor hurst um, apparently is a, a recovery nurse at yeah. an addiction center he's changed his whole life he's doing amazing things and so i feel bad for making fun of him for so many years because he's a decent human being whereas well, I mean, I think that's kind of the thing, though, right? Is that like yeah. I'm sure that a lot of the bands had a lot of decent human beings, or had a lot of people who are decent human beings, and the Canadian music industry didn't necessarily sustain these musicians for life unless you are, you know, a very small minority, right? So, I mean, at a certain point, I think a lot of musicians move on, you know, to you know, like to become nurses or ad agency executives or whatever, right? Like, yeah. and and I think with a little bit of distance, I, I mean, I imagine that there's going to be a little bit of, you know, of of reflection and i'm sure that someone can find a humor in it like i mean i find the humor in what i liked when i was that age and yeah I find you humor have to. In what i in who i was yesterday or whatever you know like yeah before we start to wrap up i just i have two quick fire questions that i want to uh, i want to get off real quick just to see um what comes out uh one is um did anyone mention the complete ignoring of hip-hop by the compilation, with with the weird notable exceptions of the Beastie Boys and One Week by Bare Naked Ladies, which are both on number three. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't discount Brand Van's contributions, Chris. That was that was closer to the Talking Heads, I think. <laughs> but uh, um, <laughs> yeah, there was some vague semi rapping on there. Um, yeah. uh, no one did, although although I think that 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 like if you actually really do think about it it actually speaks to the divide between like you know between what was considered rock culture and what was considered hip like hip-hop culture at the time mm -hmm. um no one did but i think that it's because this was very much positioned as like an alternative rock compilation so like that, that not not even just alternative rock as in like grunge but that kind of moment where alternative rock became pop music yeah i think that's what i was trying to capture um, of course, the argument kind of falls apart, though, when you're like, well, why were the Prodigy and Chemical Brothers on it later? Like, you know, what I mean? yeah. like those bands aren't alternative rock. Yeah. That, that was the explanation that was kind of given to me as to what it was supposed to be. Um, yeah. But yeah, I like I I don't know why they didn't include hip hop aside from the Beastie Boys, probably because those that was the only band that fit their definition of, you know, music for people who like alternative rock, which seems pretty fucked. Yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a weird one. Yeah, that was a yeah. We we try to wrap our heads around it. We haven't been able to find a good answer, but we will. We <laughs> before this yeah. is done, we will find an answer. 
Um, and my other yeah. quick question was, was there anything that you um, found out in the book that um, that didn't make it that that sort of stands out to you as like a fun fact or a moment or something? Writing books is really interesting because I'm used to writing for the internet. But I mean, like I could put in whatever the hell I wanted in there. My editors were were um, were very, very chill. So pretty much everything made it in there. Nice. That's good. Was yeah. there anything that uh, uh, you don't have to tell us what it was, but was there at any point where you were interviewing someone and they immediately said, don't put that in the book? I don't think so. Okay. What's really interesting about it is that like, is that like a lot of the musicians and a lot of the much executives don't work in the industry anymore. Right. So mm. it, it, like a lot of people were really quite open. Like I was kind of surprised that like the people who worked at much of the time were that willing to just like tell me details about much stuff. Mm. Cause I was like, but you know, they don't work there anymore. A lot of them don't work there anymore. And, and in the case of like David Kirkwood, he was like retired. He's like, I'm on a hobby farm now. Like, I don't know, I'll tell you like, you know, like, so like, um, People were, were pretty were pretty forthcoming. It definitely wasn't the type of book where I was told things that were like off the record and you're like, you know, like <laughs> that is a very Canadian entertainment industry book. <laughs> no scandals. Yeah. They didn't hide anything. They're just like, no, nah, for sure, here you go. And it all just happened to be above board and actually surprisingly pleasant, considering <laughs> there were six major record labels involved. Yeah, totally. Like no one was and they talked talked to people who worked at the labels too, and none of them were like we're good, we're going to talk shit in other labels or on much, you know, like everyone seemed very, very happy with it. That is remarkable. That That is very surprising. Yeah. Uh, one part of your bookmark that um, I was wanting to save to last for myself. Sorry, Chris. Um, sure. But I, I uh, throughout our conversations on the podcast, like Chris and I have had a lot of uh, similar experiences, but um, one that we haven't gotten to share was, uh, both of us knowing melancholy and the infinite sadness, like the back of our hand. Uh, I being the one who was obsessed with that album. Uh, you make a mention uh, in the book about listening to that album repeatedly. I, I just want to know what uh, Billy and co meant to you back in uh, the era of melancholy and, and um, how deep you may have gone into that album. So aside from like, a couple one-off CDs. That was the first CD that I requested as a gift, and my dad got it for me for Christmas, and I and it, I would I absolutely loved it. Like it was a classic cover before. too. I, mean, I can see your dad as a classical music lover, being like, "Oh, this is maybe a music of classical music from yeah. the Renaissance era." <laughs> they tricked him with art. <laughs> actually, no. My dad was actually incredibly sick. Where like where like he would because he loved music so much that he would just bring me down to HMV. And oh, you know, when I was like in my later teens and like discovering like death metal and grindcore and stuff, and, like just like yeah. that, I'd be like, "Dad, can you buy me this like anal cut record?" And he's like, "Sure." <laughs> I was like, "No, like, you're not looking at me. Like, I'm not doing a cover of it. Like, it's like like even I realized this is stupid." But like, um, <laughs> but like. Um, no, but the, the, like that was like that was melancholy was like um was was like I would say my first proper album and um mm -hmm. and my first proper concert like I saw them I saw them play uh, melancholy when I was it must have been the class like grade seven or something like that yeah <laughs> and I remember like I loved it so much that I think we're boisterous to tread is one song that has this it just cuts off abruptly right and um yeah. and I remember just being like the entire show I'm like when they play that song. I'm going to see how they handle this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, how do bands handle like fade outs and songs live? Like what happens? Right. And yeah. so, so I remember just like going there, enjoying it a, a hell of a lot. And the, the song started and, and, um, and I, 
I remember I was just like talking to whoever I was there with just about how much, how awesome it was or whatever. And, yeah. and the song ended well mid conversation. And I was like, I will never know how that song ended. Have you, have this, you followed, uh, have you followed Billy a little bit post nineties uh, Mark? Oh yeah. I mean, like, uh, like he, like I definitely heard about the wrestling stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like, I think my my favorite post nineties Billy moment was when he um was when he made it on the cover of like a cat magazine and it's yeah, him just holding one. two cats. That's like yeah. <laughs> that's a wholesome one. I there's many to choose from, but if I had a gun pointed to my head, I I'd feel like this one would be mine because it's how I would always want to remember Billy. Even though he's changed a lot since the nineties, there's a photo of him, I think on the children's train ride through Maintown, USA in Disneyland looking miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and it's oh, just like, dis- despite all my rage, I'm still the bald guy on a train. <laughs> oh. oh yeah, I just found it and that is incredible. <laughs> yeah. Listeners, oh. it, that's, that's basically the 90s in a nutshell. It's a but, slow train ride to your death. Yeah, the musicians in the 90s, <laughs> are either angry at Disneyland or turning their recording studios into spin classes. It's one or the other. There's no other. <laughs> and there's no right way. I mean, the thing is they're, they're both correct ways to pursue your life. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks for coming in. Um, if, if you're listening, make sure to buy um, uh, Mark's book. It's called shine. And then a bunch of other words that I refuse to say, but look great on the cover. Um, what, what was the, the name of the publishing house again? Cause I know that it's available on Amazon, but we're, we'd like to support the, the local publishing. We sold one, by the way. Did you see that? I saw that Thank on you. Twitter. That's a guy bought one. We tweeted awesome. about it. That's amazing. Um, I love it. That's great. It was, uh, what was the name of the publishing house again? So they're called eternal cavalier press, eternal cavalier. Uh, press. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So if you yeah, if you Google them, you can buy it directly from them. Right. Do that. A bunch and they, of other like Canadian music books. Yeah. So there was like a book about the hip on there and a couple other ones. So um, I mean, if you're into this podcast, this is basically this is the publishing version of this podcast. It's CanCon to the extreme. Um, thanks for coming, Mark. This was this was fantastic. Really enjoyed meeting you and having you on. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Likewise. So it was this was super fun. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. This was great. Yeah. Really appreciate it. All right, so concludes the first installment of Speaker's Corner. We spoke with Mark Teo. Uh, some pretty great insights, huh, Chris? Yeah, I found it really interesting. It was a, a really and a really good companion piece to his book and makes me listen to the album a little bit more. I'm, I'm still amazed that everyone got along so well for six major record labels. Yeah, and it's like one of those interviews where uh, I, w- I was left with more questions about things I didn't even know I was wondering about, such as nautical-themed swingers clubs. I know, right? Ah, the things you find out. Uh, well, we'll, we'll hopefully have another Speaker's Corner at some point with uh, the owner of this place. Yeah, if you own a nautical-themed swingers club in Toronto, please get in touch. We have a lot of questions. Yeah, such as, do you need to bring your own parrot? <laughs> uh, we'll be back with uh, more Speaker's Corners. We've got some great interviews lined up uh, that we're not going to name right now because, uh, uh, you know, you don't want to take a chance. You don't want to tempt fate like that. But uh, we've got some really cool ones lined up. We're very excited about it. If you want to support the show, uh, check out the uh, Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Podcast. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, uh, which is at Big Shiny Tweets, 
We have a YouTube channel where we are trying to figure out how to do reaction videos, but they keep taking us down for copyright rules. Is there anything I'm missing? Uh, if you're an anarchist music lawyer, please get in touch with us. Help us figure this out. Please help us figure it out. We want to be reacting to videos, but YouTube will not allow it. Uh, that's it, I think. We'll talk to you next week. Yep. Follow Marteo. Buy his book. Bye.